This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, it is my joy this evening to return with you in our study of the book of Joshua. So take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Joshua chapter 5. Um, the title of the message this evening is simply Holy Ground. Holy Ground. And this is a, a very fascinating portion of Scripture. We want to look at chapter 5 um, in its entirety. There's 15 verses, and I'd like to read those verses for you before we break apart this fascinating and in many ways perplexing text. And it will be my duty this evening to find a way to apply it to New Covenant believers. But let me read the text for us, Joshua 5, beginning in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came up out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come up out of Egypt. So all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. But the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom He raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord, now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? 
And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us bow for prayer. Father, we are grateful for this passage of Scripture. It is, in a way, perplexing. Lord, you move in mysterious ways and command your people to do things that, from the world's vantage point, makes no sense whatsoever. But Lord, we thank you that you give us instruction from your word. We know that the Old Testament is just as inspired as the New Testament. So we bow before you this evening, humbly asking that you might open our hearts and open our eyes to understand the importance of this passage in our Christian lives today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I've entitled the message, Holy Ground, because... After reading this passage, I think that we're all immediately drawn to the event at the end of chapter 5, namely verses 13 through 15, when the commander of the army of the Lord tells Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for you are standing on holy ground. The story is told of a soldier that once returned to a battlefield that he had fought on some 60 years before. It was an epic battle fought on the soil of Europe during World War II, and his return to the battlefield was really bittersweet. He returned with mixed emotions because on the one hand, it was the site of victory, a great victory, but on the other hand, uh, as he visited, he was reminded of all of his fallen brothers that he stood in arms with, whose lives were cut down in their late teens and their early 20s, and here was this 80-some-year-old man who had lived a full life, and uh, there were feelings of guilt. As he approached the battlefield, there was no parking lot, there were no tour buses with tourists getting off, there was just a quiet, gentle breeze. So, you can understand, therefore, why he chased away a small group of picnickers and said to them, I don't like people eating where my friends died. To him, it was a sacred place. They were standing and treading on holy ground. Well, as we enter chapter 5, we are introduced really to the second major section of Joshua. And since we are looking at Joshua uh, one time a month, I think it's important to give you sort of a handy, simple outline to follow. Part 1 of Joshua chronicles um, the children of Israel entering the Holy Land. That's chapters 1 through 4. This chronicles them entering the Holy Land. Part 2 is chapters 5 through 12. That's the section we're moving into this evening where it chronicles the children of Israel taking the Holy Land. If part 1 is about entering the Holy Land and part 2 about taking the Holy Land, then part 3 we're going to see in coming weeks, chapters 13 through 21, is about possessing the land. And then part 4, chapters 22 through 24, is about Israel retaining the land. And we have seen as we have gone through Joshua thus far that God is mightily at work all the way from the good report of the spies to move forward and to take the land because of the fear of the people to the salvation of Rahab the harlot and her household to the supernatural parting of the raging Jordan River. However, at this point, the land God had promised to them had not yet been conquered. In fact, If you know your Bible history well, you know that God had cut them off. He had cut them off from the promises. We read about this in Genesis 17. God warned Abraham 
that he would cut them off, and they were cut off temporarily for 40 years because of national unbelief. But we also know that after they wandered in the wilderness, God was now ready to fulfill his promises to Israel, and therefore God needs to reclaim as his people his true people, and this starts with a serious reclaiming of God on their part. This begins with a covenant renewal. This begins with worship. This begins with a recognition of who God is, that God is indeed with them and will go with them where they go. And so the events of chapter 5 come after the crossing of the river, that supernatural event that we looked at in chapter 4, but right before their assault on Jericho. You remember that God's blessing of salvation and success was generational by nature. If you take your Bibles and turn back with me to the book of Deuteronomy, there's a verse tucked away that is a precious verse that reminds us of this very thing. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. To a thousand generations. Well, chapter 5 is the beginning of God's people showing their allegiance to God, God embracing his people again from their temporary discipline in, their wil- in the wilderness and their wandering in the wilderness. He's ready to fulfill these promises, but they need to worship. They need to involve themselves in a covenantal renewal of sorts. They must see that they were standing on holy ground. The ground that God had promised them was holy. Holy ground given to them by a holy God. And this is an interesting chapter because in chapter 5, there are three events, I think, that highlight the blessing of being part of God's covenant people. And also there are warnings in here about being a member of God's covenant people, and I'll suspend direct application to when we actually work through the text, but just to say here at the beginning in a general way, these events that occur have practical application and implication for Christians today because I hope you understand and acknowledge that our God is unchanging. And his ways are unchanging, and his promises are unchanging. That is one of the most encouraging and comforting things about knowing the true God, is that he is faithful to his promises, and he does not change. However, because he is faithful to his promises and does not change, there can be good that comes from that, there can be bad that comes from that, there can be blessing that comes from that, there can be cursing that comes from that. So we want to look at these three events that highlight the blessing of being part of God's covenant people with a caveat that there can also be a curse or two lined up within God's plan. So three events, and the first point is what I want to call covenantal consecration. Covenantal consecration. We see this in verses 1 through 9 where we see a ceremony of covenantal consecration by way of circumcision For God's people to initiate a new generation of believers who live trusting in God's salvation promises. That is what we see, but here is what we learn. We learn that God is always looking to Christian parents to initiate their children into 
a new generation of believers. Notice how it begins in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. The kings of the Amorites would be the kings and peoples of the mountains there in verse 1. And the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea refers to the kings and the peoples along the coast. People from high, people from low, people from all around. Quite a comprehensive number of people. It says about them that they had a comprehensive fear. Their hearts melted, as verse 1 says, and there was no longer any spirit within them, which means that they knew they were doomed and their will to fight was absolutely diminished. And this is amazing to think about because all of this comes before a single sword thrust or flying arrow. No invasion has even occurred at this time and such is the power behind God's promises. In fact, one translation translates this, that the Lord dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we crossed over. There is something within verse 1 that reminds us, I think, of the ancient creeds. We believe. We believe. Those who actually were there among this generation and all of those who would follow connected to God's covenant people could say, the Lord did this for us as a testimony to his covenantal faithfulness. We've not done anything at this point. They have a fear of God in their hearts have melted away so they have no spirit even to fight. And so we go on to read in verse 2, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, At what time? At the time in which the spirit of their enemies was diminished. God makes this strange command. He says, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. Verse 3, So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Now, of course, from a human standpoint, fulfilling the consecrated rite of circumcision on the other side of the Jordan before they crossed and plain side of Jericho made more sense because if they would have done it over there, they would have had some time to heal before they crossed to assault Jericho. But God is making a point here, isn't he? And I think verse 2 reveals this was a test of sorts. Would they trust in their full strength to battle, or would they trust in God's strength in spite of their self-inflicted weakness commanded by God? Would they obey God? Would they disobey God? It seems that the pagans were now at a weak point. As verse 1 says, they no longer had any spirit to fight, and God's people are at full strength. They're ready to assault, but God strangely commands Joshua to weaken the strength of the men, paving the way for at least a three-day delay in recovery, whereby the spirits of the pagans could be strengthened again. And further, if they had caught wind that the men were circumcised and laying in bed recovering, they could go on the offensive and use the battle tactic of, say, Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, who tricked the men of Shechem to get circumcised and then attacked them while they were lying in their beds, killing all the men with swords to avenge the raping of their sister Dina. You can read about that in Genesis chapter 34. It also may be worth pointing out that God insisted that they use flint knives. In fact, that is mentioned twice, the use of flint knives, which is also strange because this was the period of the Bronze Age. 
And uh, not everyone used flint knives. That was sort of a, a primitive method in this day and age. But religious ceremonies tend to preserve ancient customs. And I think you can relate with that because the world oftentimes despises the customs of ancient Christianity. They view as primitive what we do sitting under the study and the authority of an ancient book and partaking in things like the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so this too, I think, was a test for Israel. Would they simply obey Would they fully obey? Would they circumcise the sons of Israel a second time? That's what verse 2 says God's command was. Now let me just make a point here. It is impossible to circumcise someone twice unless, I suppose, and I'm not trying to be gross, that the first time was a botched job. But this is not individual recircumcision for medical purposes. This is, mark it, a reinstitution of circumcision which has been neglected by God's people in the wilderness, which is made clearer later in this passage. But notice verse 3, it says, Joshua obeyed, he made flint knives, he circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. Gibeath Haraloth literally means the hill of foreskins. Um, This was a memorial of sorts, a strange memorial, a strange command by God. And so we've got to ask the question, why was this so important? Well, when you go back into Israelite history, you understand that when God promised the land to Abraham, he told him that anyone not circumcised was in violation of the covenant. You can read about this in Genesis 17. God actually says, I will cut off those who disobey my commandments. And part of his commandments was that Israel would be circumcised. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision, which was vital to getting the land because God desired a people that were truly his people, truly marked out, truly different from the world, truly cut out of the world in order to give them the land. And if you fast forward a little bit further, you understand that Moses under a series of circumstances, was not circumcised as a baby. He was raised as an Egyptian. And so when God called Moses to lead his people out of Israel, before he could even go to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4, God commanded that Moses be circumcised. And moreover, God instructed Moses that no uncircumcised males were allowed to participate in the Passover meal in Exodus chapter 12. Because you see, far more important than military strategy was that God's people trusted the simple promises of God and obeyed them. No matter how strange they might appear, no matter how untimely they might be, better to have no foreskin and a heart right with God. Better to have temporary pain than to be cut off permanently from God. And in fact, you can't understand physical circumcision as a, a sign of God's covenant unless you at the same time understand God's desire above all as it relates to circumcision and God clearly identified that in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6 the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live there it is Deuteronomy 30 and verse 6 the purpose of physical circumcision was that God wanted a spiritual people. He wanted their hearts circumcised and devoted to Him, loving Him with all of their being. Now let me say that what was circumcision to Old Covenant Israel is what baptism is to the New Covenant people of God. Circumcision was the mark of the covenant, the sign, the marking out of one's membership 
within the covenant people of God, just as baptism marks out God's covenant people today as a divine sign and seal of God's good promises. So you can begin to see where the application is going, but please note verses 5 through 7 because they explain that this was a reinstitution of circumcision on a national scale due to the older generation's neglect and disobedience. Verse 5 or verse 4 And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Verse 5, though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. None of the males, in other words, born in the wilderness, had been circumcised. God's people were in rebellion. And so one of two things is either true. Number one, God suspended the practice of circumcision in the wilderness because God's people rejected his promises. They didn't overtake the land as they were commanded to do, and they wandered for 40 years with no signs and no seals of promise to ever make it to the land. That's a possibility, although I think it's unlikely that God commanded them not to do it. I think it's more likely that, number two, the people themselves gave up the practice, listen, because they gave up hope in the promises of God. They were, after all, as the Bible says, a stubborn and stiff-necked people. And that is why God now commands them a second time, because he's already commanded them before, that they be circumcised. So notice verse 6, for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness and to all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. Standing on the southern border of the promised land, They were discouraged. You remember in Numbers 13 and 14, discouraged by the spies' report, they refused to assault the land. And though verse 6 says that this was a land flowing with milk and honey, God's people didn't enjoy it for 40 years. And so it is explained in verse 7, so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. It appears here that Joshua, just like he did back in Numbers 13 and 14 as a young man, was trusting in the promises of God. He was trusting in what was stated in Numbers 14.31, but your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. Your little ones that you didn't want to bring into the land because you thought they would be killed, I will preserve them and I will kill you, the older ones, in the wilderness and I will give the land to them. And they hadn't been circumcised yet. They had not been consecrated and set apart to God. And so God commands Joshua to do this. You get the picture here, I think, that this is as if a new obedient nation was emerging, that You could look at it this way. The crossing of the Jordan was like a rebirth. And the application of the sign of circumcision was a covenantal renewal ceremony that God's people were now going to trust God's promises. And so Joshua obeys and the people obey. And notice verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they were obedient, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. This was probably a three-day healing for grown men. 
Verse 9, and the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. I love that language. The reproach of Egypt was rolled away or removed. Israel would move on from her past, and God's promises would roll on according to plan. In fact, the name Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew word Gelal, which means to roll. God's people would continue to roll on into the promised land and the reproach of Egypt would roll off of them. This is a new beginning. They've been born again. This nation now consecrated anew to God. Now the question is, how in the world does verses 1 through 9 apply to Christians today? Well, really quite easily. God has not merely promised his people a strip of land in the Middle East. He has promised us the world as an inheritance, that there will be a great revival, that the full knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So Habakkuk 2.14, what is the pathway for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord? And as Christians, we answer it is through the preaching of the gospel, the good news that God is creating for himself a people. In fact, he calls us a holy nation in the New Testament, 1 Peter 2.9. We are the new Israel. We are the renewed Israel and people of God. And although we don't circumcise for spiritual reasons now, and although baptism doesn't save, baptism is a sign and a seal of these gospel promises. Baptism, like circumcision, serves as a sign and a seal of God's covenantal promises to the next generation of of believers, to the children of believers. In fact, we see this in the book of Acts. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 2, Peter was very clear about this to that first generation of Jewish believers, although baptism had obviously replaced circumcision. Peter says, After speaking about the gospel in verse 38 and the importance of repentance, Peter says in verse 39 of Acts 2, for the promise is for you. The promise of what? The promise of the gospel. The promise of salvation. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. We could say Deuteronomy 7, 9, to a thousand generations, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself you see God's plan to invade the world not just a strip of land in the Middle East God's plan to invade the world with the gospel does not follow traditional warfare God wants our hearts more than he wants our swords he wants our children's hearts and he's promised to conquer their hearts and baptism is a soul strengthening sacrament where we consecrate our children, to be a witness to the fact that we are standing on holy ground, we are standing on holy promises that are generational, and not just generational, but global in nature. We serve the same God. And it is amazing to see how the Lord works through Christian parents, and He works through Christian families that are established in the faith, nurturing and raising their children in the admonition of the Lord, pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we want a revival in the modern church, if we want a revival in our nation, it will come with an emphasis on the next generation 
And that does not mean huge youth groups and children's church that is separated from the rest of God's people. It involves the adults of the church embracing the second generation and consecrating them to the Lord. That is what Israel does here. They're obedient to the Lord. And just like church growth gurus and other people despise the sacraments, the true people of God are not to despise baptism. We are to trust in this ancient custom, this ancient rite, that this is the thing God has ordained and designed to be a sign and a seal to strengthen our faith and to renew our zeal to understand that we will be the recipients of God's blessing, to bless the earth with the gospel, to bless our families and our church with the next generation of gospel believers. And so there is application from Joshua 5, and that first great event, covenantal consecration, reminds us of that. But there's another event that occurs in this passage. We move from covenantal consecration, verses 1 through 9, number 2, to covenantal commemoration. Covenantal commemoration, we see this in verses 10 through 12, where we see that another ceremony takes place, a ceremony of commemoration and the celebration of the Passover. And here we learn in these verses that God wants His people to remember the blessed hand of God, a hand not only of promise seen in circumcision, but also His hand of provision and providence seen in the celebration of the Passover. And so we read in verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. The plains of Jericho indicate the fact that they are in the promised land. And they have already obeyed that first great sacrament of circumcision. And it's only natural that they would now celebrate the second sacrament of the Old Testament, the Passover. Verse 10 tells us, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month. If you go back to chapter 4, that tells us it was the first month. And this means that um, this Passover in the Promised Land was kept with the day historically tagged for observing the Passover, dating all the way back to the first Passover in Exodus chapter 12. So they celebrate the Passover in the Promised Land on the same day of the year that they celebrated the Passover when they were still slaves in Egypt. They celebrate this Passover. They celebrated it when their redemption was promised while they were still in Egypt. And now they're celebrating their Passover again at the completion of their redemption on the brink of invading the land because the Passover is a commemoration of God's deliverance of them from Egyptian bondage. And they understand that. They're connecting the dots and they are saying now our day of deliverance has truly come because we can see the land and we're ready to take it. And so this Passover on this day in verse 10 is a feast of victory before the actual victory. There's not been one sword thrust or flying arrow. You say, well, that's sort of strange. Well, not really. This is not too dissimilar to our tension in the Lord's Supper, the New Testament version of the Passover now here Israel has not experienced actual full victory. They've yet to invade, but they are out of Egypt. They are out of the wilderness. They've been delivered. They're on the brink of, of the promised land. They're living out the already not yet tension. Instead of hearing the crack of the whip, they hear the snap of unleavened bread and remember their deliverance from the good hand of God 
And we too, since we celebrate our Lord's death and resurrection and the Lord's Supper, we understand that we've truly been delivered from our bondage to sin. We've been studying this in Romans chapter 7. Paul uses language in chapter 7 of Romans verses 1 through 6 that we've been freed from the law, that we've been delivered from our bondage. He says in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation to us who are in Christ. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, right? We celebrate it not to earn our salvation. We celebrate it because we're celebrating God's deliverance of us from our sin. But yet there are still many battles to fight with sin. And that's the other thing Paul addresses in Romans chapter 7. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The very things that I do, I absolutely hate. Oh, wretched man that I am. And we will fight these battles until we see the Lord, and he consummates his kingdom. And as I said at the beginning of our study of Joshua, Joshua pictures the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus shared his name, Joshua. It means Yahweh saves. And what did the Joshua of the New Testament do the night of his betrayal? Well, he ate the Passover with the disciples, and he instituted a new sacrament, the Lord's Supper, for the covenant People of God, Jesus as the cornerstone, the apostles and prophets as the foundation of the church for this sacrament of the Lord's Supper to be pivotal to the life of the church. And Acts 2.42 makes that clear. They devoted themselves to the preaching and teaching of the apostles. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And here we have a taste of what's to come in the Lord's Supper. We don't wait as we celebrate our redemption. Well, Israel also had a taste of it. They had a taste of the future. Notice verse 11. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land. Not only the unleavened cakes, which they would have used in celebrating the Passover, but also it says the parched grain. No more the diet of manna and quail as in the wilderness. They now ate the unleavened cakes During the week-long Passover celebration, they ate the produce of the land, including the parched grain on top of that. And this is so important to see that verse 12 reinforces it. Notice your Bibles. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. In other words, no more manna. No more manna. You now will eat the produce of the land. You will have a blessed and fruitful land. You will come now to be able to satisfy yourselves in the hard work of toiling the ground and seeing a great increase. And he says there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. I think this is reinforced in verse 12 to show why this Passover was a glorious celebration of deliverance. God's sustaining hand while in the wilderness and now The fulfillment of ancient promises and actually tasting the fruit of the land of Canaan must have been a marvelous experience, but there also lurked the danger of taking for granted in the coming years God's blessings that the Passover celebration might lose its new appeal. Think about it. In the wilderness, the manna supernaturally came out of heaven, being dropped down as it were by God's own hand, but now... The normal cycle of seasons would allow for the earth, not heaven in a sense, to produce food in this new fruitful land. And here's where the danger lied. It lied in taking for granted God's common daily 
provisions from the earth and not viewing them as quite the same as coming from his hand straight down from heaven. And before you know it, you have an Israelite that's discontent in a fruitful land saying, where is God's supernatural provision like manna falling from heaven? We're the same way. We take for granted God's daily provisions as if that isn't an act of providence as well. The normal cycles and seasons of life and daily provisions. Perhaps this is why the Lord taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because when you pray that, it's a reminder to you that you shouldn't take advantage of that. In fact, one perceptive commentator insightfully points out this. He says, and I quote, the manna was God's special supply for an exceptional need. But now that the need becomes normal, his provision comes by ordinary means. But it is still his provision, whether it is manna that falls down from heaven in the wilderness or grain that grows in the ground in Canaan. You see, we often take for granted God's provision by ordinary means, don't we? We expect something dazzling, like a vision or a dream, looking for God in the earthquake or the wind or the fire. This would be the challenge of Israel. This is our challenge, but God is right in front of us. The evidence of His good, blessed hand is found in our daily needs being met, safety traveling to and from work and school and church, three meals a day, vacations, a healthy marriage, obedient children, a safe community, ad infinitum. But we not only take for granted God's ordinary provisions by ordinary means, We also take for granted God's supernatural provision of sovereign salvation, and we often don't celebrate properly or zealously the supernatural provision by the ordinary means supplied by God in the Lord's Supper. We are oftentimes very guilty of viewing the Lord's Supper as just a custom and just a ritual and just something that we're commanded to do. But the Lord's Supper is the ordinary means of grace that God has given us to celebrate our redemption from bondage to sin. It strengthens our faith. It steals our resolve. And yet the church today is full of so-called experts that essentially despise the primary means of God's grace. They despise baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're just customs that the church has to do. But the true value of any church is found in her programs or found in some other ministries or found in some other activities. And what is the problem here? It is a lack of faith on the part of the people of God. Well, here Israel is renewing themselves covenantally before God. And so they participate in a covenantal consecration, circumcising their young boys of the next generation who are now full-grown men. And they participate in this covenantal commemoration celebrating the Passover but the whole passage really makes sense when we get to the third event we move from the covenantal consecration verses 1 through 9 and the covenantal commemoration verses 10 through 12 now verses 13 through 15 to the covenantal captivation and the purpose behind the covenantal consecration circumcision and the covenantal commemoration the Passover was to see that God was with them every step of the way as they invaded the land. So we read in verses 13 through 15 how God captured the attention of Joshua, the commander of Israel's foot soldiers. This is one of the most fascinating and encouraging scenes in all of Scripture. It's also fear-filled at the same time. Notice verse 13. 
It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? I mean, are you the enemy or are you with us? Are you here to hurt us or defend us? And he said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Just sort of a bird's eye view of this passage tells us that this figure has a drawn sword. He identifies himself as a captain or a commander of the army of the Lord. And um, this is a strange occurrence, not something Joshua thought he would see or face. When verse 13 says there that Joshua was by Jericho, we can only assume that probably on the evening before the invasion, the plan to attack that Joshua, as the commander of Israel's foot soldiers, was doing his job. He was surveying the fortifications of Jericho. He was developing a battle plan, a battle strategy. Perhaps because he was a man of God, he was even praying. And then suddenly, as verse 13 says, he lifted up his eyes. Imagine this and what appeared to him as a man stood before him. Not just that, verse 13 says, standing before him, notice the text, with his drawn sword. In fact, he looked so much like another soldier that Joshua, perhaps with drawn sword himself, said, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, there have been countless pages of commentary written on this mysterious figure, but we needn't doubt this undoubtedly was a pre-incarnate, manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who is also pictured in the book of Revelation with a sword coming from his mouth. In fact, there are many illustrations in the Old Testament that give testimony to the identity of this as a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. You think back to Genesis chapter 32 where we see the angels of God meeting with Jacob to assure him that uh, his brother Esau will not harm him. And we read in that passage that Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. We see later another illustration of heaven's hosts or angels coming to the aid of his people in the days of Elisha, the prophet, defending them against the forces of Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. You know the story well in 2 Kings chapter 6, one morning while Ben-Hadad's armies were planning an attack, uh, the servant of Elisha went to draw water and saw that the army with horses and chariots was surrounding the city. And so the servant of Elisha went to his master and he said, what in the world are we going to do? We're going to be overcome. He was afraid. He didn't know what Israel's enemy might do. And Elisha calmly prayed for God to open his servant's eyes. And when his servant opened his eyes, he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. It appears in 2 Kings chapter 6 that these angelic armies of Yahweh, the captain of this force, was striking the armies of the king of Syria, which is exactly what happened. They were struck with blindness, and Elisha, the prophet of God, led them into the fortified city of Samaria to capture them. And as we're going to see, beginning in chapter 6 later in our study, God is here in chapter 5 opening the eyes of Joshua 
not just to see the angels of God, but to see the very commander, the captain of Yahweh's angelic armies, how he's going to lead them to conquer the fortified city of Jericho. And we know from the Old Testament, such as Psalm 34, verse 7, that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. This is the angel of the Lord. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ standing before Joshua, the second person of the Trinity. In fact, there is an interesting statement. I love this statement by Jesus. It was said to Peter on the night of our Lord's betrayal when Peter struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear with his sword. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? This is Jesus, the captain of Yahweh's army. This is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus who shows up in many places throughout the Old Testament. And so we read in verse 14, after Joshua asked the question, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the captain of the Lord's army, the commander said, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. I think there is a message that was given to Joshua by the commander of the army of the Lord in the middle of verse 14. He answers, no, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. And I think it's here that he gives some, gives some instructions to Joshua concerning how he's going to overtake Jericho because we read about that later. Now, it's not recorded here, but it's obvious there was more to this conversation than meets the eye. But what I want you to see is that his response, are you for us or against us, is no. That's sort of a strange response. And he says... Um, I'm the commander of the Lord's army, the army of the Lord. Now I have come. The sense is, I have come as the one in charge to tell you what to do. Instructions to be obeyed, which I think are given here. They're implied in verse 14, although they're not given explicitly. Instructions that Joshua would obey during the seven-year campaign in Canaan. But what an interesting response. Are you for us or against us? And the commander of the Lord's army, the pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus, says no. That's strange because that indicates a, a neutral position on his part. He's neither for or against Joshua. He's neither for or against Israel. Now, of course, we know better because we see that God is clearly for Joshua. He's clearly for Israel. He's clearly against the Canaanites. This book bears that out. The whole Old Testament bears that out. So what did he mean by this response? Well, let me put it to you this way. He says no, and he answers it that way because it wasn't the self-appointed right for Joshua to claim God's sole allegiance in endorsing all that Israel did in the campaign against Canaan. First, because on the face of it, he couldn't endorse sin in the camp, for example. And we're going to read about that in chapter 7. Israel's defeated at Ai because of the sin of one man who was part of one tribe of one family, the sin of Achan, who stole things devoted, the gold and the silver. He hid them in his tent and 
We even read that the Lord viewed this as a corporate sin, so he punished Israel. Read in chapter 7 and verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed the covenant I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their belongings. And interestingly, we read that from Achan's standpoint, it was an individual sin because in verse 20, Achan answered Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord of Israel and this is what I did. But from God's vantage point, it was a breaking of the covenant. And when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see how the sin of even one person among God's covenant people can wreak devastation and the disciplining hand of God. But secondly, the commander of the Lord's army responds this way, not only because on the face of it, it's his way of saying, I can't endorse everything you do, but, but secondly, it wasn't Joshua's self-appointed right to claim God's sole allegiance to Israel because It was God's right to claim Joshua's allegiance to him. And those are two very different things. In other words, God would lead and Joshua would follow. He responds this way, no. Because he doesn't want Joshua to think that Joshua is fighting for the glory of himself or that Joshua is fighting for the glory of Israel. Joshua is fighting for the glory of God. This campaign was less about the glory of Israel, much more or less about the glory of Joshua It was about the glory of God. In the final analysis, Joshua wasn't fighting for Israel's cause, much less his own. He was fighting for the cause of God and God's alone, and that would be dependent upon to the degree that he would actually obey God. And so the pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord responds in this neutral way as if to say, look, you better watch the steps that you take because I am in charge here. What a reminder to us that all Christian leaders who lead with integrity lead this way. True Christian leaders lead with integrity. True Christian leaders lead with sensitivity to the Lord's leading. And true Christian leaders who lead with integrity and lead with sensitivity to the Lord's leading always lean upon the authority of God's Word. This was a test for Joshua. You want to go toe-to-toe with the commander of the Lord's army? I don't think so. And so what is the response? Notice the rest of Verse 14, he's already said, I have come, you're going to listen to me. And the end of verse 14 says, Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? I mean, this is pure worship and submission. He must have sensed he was in the presence of God, but he uses uh, the word Lord. It's uh, in the lowercase in your English Bibles because it's actually the Hebrew word Adonai, which could be translated as sir, and different men would call other men Adonai or sir as a term of respect. So you get the sense that he probably thinks he's in the presence of God, but maybe he's not quite sure. But after verse 15, he had no doubt he was in God's presence, that he had God's power and provision, that God would go with him. Because notice verse 15, And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Now, there's no doubt there that this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. He's standing before God, and he knows it. And the end of verse 15 says, Joshua did so. You see, Joshua was familiar with his mentor, Moses. What happened in Exodus chapter 3, Moses stood before God in that burning bush, and God told him the same thing. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Remove your sandals. And here is the point. Any place 
where God reveals his presence and his power and his comfort and his provision is hallowed ground. It is holy ground. The holy ground for a Christian in the new covenant is the place that God meets and speaks to us in the most direct and pronounced ways. This goes back to what we've been talking about from the beginning, the primary means of God's grace. It's the preaching of the word of God in which the Christian will be most sanctified when he sits underneath that. It is the observance of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, these ancient customs that are often despised, which is where we most truly meet with God. And when you read the confessions, whether it's the Westminster or the Belgic or the Helvetic or the Heidelberg Catechism or the Second London Baptist, you read about the fact that they affirmed, we believe that the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God is a means of grace, but especially the preaching of the Word of God. And the other means of grace are baptism and the Lord's Supper. This passage encourages greatly God's people that God is with us. God is in our midst. Every time we hear the word of God proclaimed, every time we gather on the Lord's day to sit under the instruction of God's word, we are sitting at the feet of the commander of the army of the Lord, the captain of the hosts of heaven, the angelic armies that surround us. We're in the presence of God. In the visible sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we see Christ. And so just as Israel emphasized covenantal consecration and circumcision, promising generational blessings, so too we emphasize baptism. And so my question tonight is, do you see the sacrament of baptism as one of God's promised salvation blessings? And like Israel, there's a warning here because we can be physically part of God's covenant people. We can be physically baptized and still reject the gospel and be cut off from God's people entering a period in the wilderness away from God. So God's covenant people must examine their hearts to root out any unbelief apart from which we will not be blessed. And I should hasten to say this is not really an argument between whether you're Baptist or Presbyterian because both of those groups have their own set of issues. I grew up as a Baptist, and I think that I can say that Baptists tend to diminish the sacrament of baptism because they view it as a church growth sort of mechanism oftentimes. And on the other hand, Presbyterians are not innocent because they oftentimes view the sacrament as a means of salvation instead of a sign pointing to salvation, and they assume that their children are regenerate. The children of Israel understand the importance of this covenantal consecration setting apart the next generation of believers, pointing them to the word of God, reminding them about the past failures of the fathers. And just as Israel's emphasis was on covenantal commemoration in the Passover, so too the Lord's Supper is something that Christians are to celebrate regularly and heartfully with full heart and mind and soul, which requires examination. It should Strike fear in our hearts when someone is disciplined and barred from partaking of the Lord's Supper. It should cause us to examine our hearts because baptism and the Lord's Supper are the primary means by which God reminds us of who we are in Christ, causing us to examine our hearts, confess our sin, having our 
our strength fortified in the promises of God visibly seen in the sacraments. And the reality is, is that Christ is present among the sacraments. He speaks to us in the preaching of the Word of God. He puts His arms around us and walks among us through the sacraments. This is covenantal captivation. Loving to be in the comforting presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than being despised or diminished, the sacraments should be embraced and emphasized. All Christians should understand the simplicity of Christianity, the meeting of God's people on the Lord's Day, the observation of the sacraments, sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. It is there that we'll find strength to battle the raging trials and temptations of life. And here we have a wonderful example of Israel trusting in these ancient customs, even to the point of inflicting themselves with pain and placing themselves at risk of being under attack because they trust promises of God. You know, it's often true that when I go to someone's house to visit, I'm always sensitive to the fact that people are finicky about whether you wear your, your shoes in their house. And so I always meet them at the door by saying, would you like me to take my shoes off? I'm somewhat sensitive to that because I've learned the hard way at times. And in our house, we usually don't require that. But many people do require shoes off in a house. Well, by a simple analogy and illustration, when you come into the Lord's house, you need to understand that you need to take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. The things that we participate in are holy. They aren't to be trifled with. This isn't a child's game. God has given us these blessings through the preaching of the word, through baptism and the Lord's Supper to meet his people, to comfort his people, to stand before his people as the commander of the Lord's army to remind us of the precious promises of the gospel to enable us to have hope and strength each week to go out and live our lives to the glory of God with great hope, trusting that he will come again someday, consummate his kingdom, and someday the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. God has not merely focused on a particular plot of land in the Middle East. God's focus is much broader. It's on invading this world with the gospel, and God cannot lose this battle. He is undefeated in his warfare with Satan. And if you know Christ, you're on the winning side. You can smile and have hope regardless of what is going on in the world. You can come to church each Lord's Day, hear the preaching of the word, observe the sacraments, and have a peace which truly passes all understanding. Glory be to God. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com.